Amen. All right, do me a favor. Track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. We're doing a series. We're in the middle of the book of Acts. We're learning from the early church and the challenges that they were experiencing and the challenge that they faced. And uh, we're, we're listening in to the voice of our risen Lord and Savior through the book of Acts. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 24 of Acts chapter 12. And then we'll pray and we will get to work. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Then Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened, it opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of man. 
Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of, the, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now again that you would use this time to speak over us. We're grateful, God, for your word and how it steadies us in a time of uncertainty, in a time of challenge, in a time of difficulty, God. We're grateful that you continue to remind us of who we are and what you are doing. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak, that we would hear your voice loud and clear. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's look at the three different scenes that we find here in our passage today. There are three different kind of episodes. And so the story kind of moves through, but we've got these three different episodes or scenes tucked into it. And so scene one, we've got a threat. And then scene two, we have a divine rescue. And then scene three, we have this incredible reversal. So let's take them one at a time. The threat comes in verses one to four. It's the threat that the church is experiencing. They're this fragile young group, and they're not, you know, super influential yet. They're not this huge movement yet. They're this kind of band of followers, and there's a threat because the king, this unbelieving king, this governmental official, is looking at them, and he's going to arrest and harass and persecute them, and the culture is, a, is approving of that. The culture is is saying this is a wonderful thing that you're taking members of the church and you're putting to the, them to the sword or you're executing them or you're uh, treating them with hostility. And so the threat is in verses one to four that Herod is persecuting the church. Look with me at verse one. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. So you've got these believers in Christ, these followers of the way. They're now being described as members belonging to the church. And Herod is laying violent hands on them. He's capturing them. He's taking them captive and he's harassing them and persecuting them. And, and that's his intent. And so you've got the church being harassed. And he even has one of the apostles executed in verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So you've got this hostility toward them, and it's, it's resulting in their, the, certain individuals from the church are even being killed in this moment. And this is publicly approved. Verse 3, the, the Jews see this, and they give approval to it. When he saw, when King Herod saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So there's kind of this cultural thing going on where people look at the church and they say, the church is a problem. And if you're going to arrest them and mistreat them, we're going to give approval to that. And so Peter is arrested, but it's happening during this religious festival. So King Herod wants his approval ratings to go up. He's loving that he's getting kind of a pat on the back, that he's doing such a good job, but there's a religious festival. So he puts Peter in prison so that the Passover can happen, this festival can happen. And then afterwards, his intent is that he's going to make this public spectacle of Peter the apostle. Look at verse four. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. And so we have here this incredible threat in verses one to four. The church is on its heels. The church is being harassed. 
And I want to show you a couple different lessons that we might learn from this threat here. The first thing is that it is possible for us to be wrong. There's a theme that has emerged as we've gone through the middle of the book of Acts. And one of the themes that keeps showing up over and over again is you've got people who think that they're doing the work of God when in fact they're operating in opposition to God. It happens over and over again. So we might be wrong. We have to learn this. We can, we can read through this section and miss this incredible reality. There are people who are doing something, believing that it is their religious conviction that's inspiring them to do something and live a certain way, when in fact they're, they're in direct opposition to God. Let me remind you of these, these different instances. In Acts chapter 9, we had Saul arresting members of the church, followers of the way. He was going to various places where they were scattered to and he was going to capture them and he was going to retrieve them and bring them back to Jerusalem where he was going to prosecute them and persecute them and maybe even execute them. And so you've got him thinking, I'm doing the work of God here. I'm taking these troublemakers and my religious convictions are informing me that I'm going to do something about them. I'm going to harm them. I'm I'm going to stop them in their tracks so they can no longer continue to teach this false reality. And Jesus meets him there on the road and he says, why are you persecuting me? And there's this kind of wake up call for Saul. You are not doing the work of God here. You're doing the exact opposite. And his life is radically changed. In Acts chapter 11, we found Peter in a similar way. There's a vision where he gets to see these these animals. And what is he saying here in, in Acts chapter 11? What is he saying there? My religious convictions inform me that I should not associate with Gentiles. I don't associate with anyone or anything that is unclean. And he believes that he's doing the right thing, that he's doing the work of God. But what does God say to him there? Don't call something impure that I've made clean. You might think that you are doing the work of God when in fact you're doing the opposite. And and I want to suggest that we need to be a people who are humble enough to say, we could be wrong. And, and even these things that we feel so strongly about and we would go to our Bibles to try to, to try to justify, we need to be careful that we're not acting in opposition to God. So in our passage here today in Acts chapter 12, we've got a group called the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. And what are they doing? They're opposing the work of God. Again, again, over and over, this theme emerges that there are people who are doing this religious activity informed by their religious convictions when in fact they're in direct opposition to God. So this is a moment for deep humility. We as Christians ought to be able to say, I want to be certain that I'm following God and not my own opinions, not my own convictions, but what God is actually up to in the world today. I want to be certain that I'm following him and I could be wrong. So let's have the humility to acknowledge that at least. That's one of the lessons that we find here. A second lesson that we find here is that often when threat comes, it looks and feels like we're losing. It looks and feels like we're losing. If you're tracking with the story here, if you allow the gravity of the moment to kind of overwhelm you, the church is losing, right? They've got key leaders called apostles, and they're not a very established movement yet. 
They're fragile. They're, they're new. They're, they, there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty about their future. And in this moment, you've got this governmental official who captures and seizes and lays hands on members of the church. And then he gets one of the key leaders and he executes him. He puts him to the sword. And then seeing that that causes his approval rating to go up, he grabs Peter. The, the, remember, Peter is the one who Jesus looked at him and he said, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter confessed him as Lord and Messiah. And Jesus said, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And now you've got Peter and he's been imprisoned. And the intent that Herod has, if you're reading the story correctly, I think Herod is wanting to bring him out for a public trial to humiliate him and ultimately to execute him. So it looks and feels like the church is losing. It looks and feels like the church has no hope here. And so when we think through this and what it means for us, if we're looking at the world right now and we're wondering what on earth is God up to, and you begin to kind of question the effectiveness of the church or how culture is handling Christianity right now, and we're moving from kind of Christendom where Christianity celebrated to post-Christendom where Christianity is rejected and there's oftentimes hostility toward it, you might feel like we're losing. We're losing ground. We're losing cultural credibility. We're losing our ability to be and do what we want to be and do. We're losing. And that's what it often looks and feels like in the face of threat. Now, I'm, I'm not going to resolve that yet. I'm going to let that hang out there for just a minute. But you might feel like right now the church is on its heels and we're not doing so great. We're in trouble. You might feel that right now. We're not, we're not, there's restrictions on what we can and can't do. Culture's moving away from what we consider to be important and normative. And we're moving away from that and we're just in trouble. But we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, here's the, the third lesson I want to show you from scene number one. It's that suffering is normative. Uh, suffering to, as a Christian, I mean, we, we don't get this. If you're reading your Bible, it's almost a foreign concept to us because we've lived in Christendom, Christendom so long that we're just used to the comforts that we have as believers. But if you read the Bible, persecution is normal. And if you even look at the world church, the global church, persecution is normal. So what we experience without any threat or without any trouble is abnormal. But we find here in our story once again, that if you follow Christ, if you are faithful to him, you should expect persecution. If you're following Christ throughout human history and the global church, the normal thing is you will be mistreated for your faith. People will be hostile toward you. And we have to be ready for that. We have to be a people who say, I will follow Christ no matter what it costs me. I will be with him no matter what, but I'm ready for that because I read my Bible and I see how normal persecution is. All right, let's move on to scene two now. We have a rescue in verses five to 19. Peter's in prison, waiting till the Passover is over, and then Herod intends to bring him out for a public trial and ultimately to execute him. So verse 5 starts this way. So Peter was kept in prison. 
So he's arrested. He's in there. They're waiting for that time to elapse. And then he's going to be, be brought forward. But look at this, verse 5. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So he's incarcerated, but the church says, Peter, we are praying to God for you. We are praying earnestly for your release, for your deliverance. The church is praying. And so Peter is sleeping and an angel comes and breaks him out. Look at this, verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So he's in prison. This is the night before his execution, and he's sleeping. We're going to come back to that because that's beautiful. He's sleeping soundly, and he's in chains, and he's got guards around him and posted all, all over the place, and an angel prods him awake. Um, my brother Brad, he's a hard sleeper. When we would have to wake him up, we would, we would poke him and then we'd run. So he, this was kind of like Peter. The angel has to prod him awake and get him and say, get up, put your clothes on, let's go. And they start to move then, the chains fall off. They start to move past these different divisions of soldiers. They get to an iron gate that leads out to the city and the gate just opens up in front of them. And then they're walking, they go something like a city block. And, and you know, Peter, this whole time, he's thinking, you know, he's groggy, he's sleepy. Um, he's like some of us this morning, we're not caffeinated yet. And he's just kind of like, I don't know what's happening right now. This is maybe a vision. And, and then the angel departs and he kind of comes to his senses. Look at verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and he's rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. So now, boom, he's awake, he's alert, and he is assessing the situation and he goes, God rescued me. He delivered me and I'm free. And then he goes off to where the disciples are and they're having a prayer meeting. There's many gathered in that home and they're praying and he's knocking We'll come back to this idea of prayer and how important it is. But he's knocking and a servant girl comes to the door. Who is it? Oh, it's, it's me. It's Peter. She's so excited that she doesn't open the door. She just runs away, runs back in there and says, guys, guys, Peter is here. And they say, no way. You're crazy. And, and they actually begin to kind of invent some wonky theology here. It's probably just his angel. Peter can't be here. He's in prison. Herod's going to execute him. Maybe it's his guardian angel. Just sounds like him. So then Peter keeps knocking and they go to the door and it is him and they open it to him. Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he says this, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. Okay. That's scene number two. That is the the rescue that God brings about for Peter. All right, here are some lessons for us as we consider this. One of the things we have to come to grips with is we have divine help. We have divine help and God is able to rescue us. Now, that does not mean that he always does. We've already said that suffering and persecution is normal for believers. 
But we need to be able to say with confidence, God is able to rescue us. He is more than capable to do this. And so we believe that. Now, whether or not we end up like James at the end of a sword or like Peter being rescued from prison, that truth remains the same. We know that God is able to deliver us. So we, we don't know which, which version we get, but we trust that God can deliver us. It looks like this. If you guys remember in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there are three individuals in a society that was hostile toward the things of God. There was a king who is telling everybody, you have to worship me, you have to bow down to me. And he says, if anyone doesn't do that, I've got this furnace here and I'll throw you into it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God is able to deliver us. We're not going to worship you. We worship the one true and living God. We're not going to bow down to any king or any idol or any statue. We're going to worship God. And our God is able to save us. But here's what they say. But even if he doesn't, we're going to do this, right? That's the posture that we need to have. Our God is able to deliver us. That's the truth for sure. We're fully confident in that. Now, whether we end up at the end of a sword being executed for our faith or whether God does some divine activity where he just kind of sets us free, we trust him. He is able to deliver us. And God has given us a walkie-talkie. He's given us a way to communicate with him. He's given us a way to call on his help. My daughter, uh, I don't remember if it was her birthday or Christmas, but she got walkie-talkies. And she will give me one and she'll say, okay, dad, uh, you stay in here and I'm going to go out here and we can talk. And then she'll say, dad, are you there? Over. I'm here, babe. If she says to me, dad, I need your help. I'm on my way, babe. Right? There's this communication that's happening between her and I. She's got a walkie talkie and she knows on the other end of this thing, my dad is there. And if I need anything, I can call on him and he will, he will come. And that's what God has given us in this beautiful thing called prayer. God invites us to talk to him. And in a moment of cultural hostility, we need to be able to say, we are Christians who can call on our heavenly father and he is able to answer. We need to be a people who are praying, who when we're looking at the, the world that, that we find ourselves in right now, we need to be saying, we are a people of prayer. We can talk to God and he listens to us and we can communicate to him and he loves us and, and he's able to rescue us and he's able to care for us and he's able to do all that we would need. So we need to be people who are talking to him. This is a moment for the church to be a praying people. When things got hard for them and it looked like they were losing, they went to prayer. And my question for us is, are we doing the same? Are we willing to say right now, maybe one of the most significant things that we could do as a church is to get on our walkie-talkie. God, are you there? Over? We need help. I'm on my way. Right? God is there and he's asking us, come on, make this a priority. And if you're looking at the church in this story, what are they doing? Praying earnestly. They're praying earnestly. They're not just kind of like, ah, this is just going to be some casual, we'll, we'll pray at our convenience. No, they're praying earnestly. So even when Peter's released from prison, he finds them in a prayer meeting. 
Where are the disciples at? They're in a home praying together. If God were to show up in our homes tonight, what would he find? Would he find us on our knees together in prayer? The church needs to be calling out to God in this moment, believing that he is able to do an incredible work in this season. Prayer is the instrument that God has given to us. Let's use it. Let's call on him. Here's another lesson that I love so much right now. When you believe what it is that I'm showing you here today, you can have such deep peace that you can sleep easy. You can rest easy, right? Look at, look at Peter in prison, in chains, with guards around him and sentries posted around him. And what is he doing? He's sleeping like a baby. He's sleeping so soundly that the angel has to knock him awake. Now, we need this, don't we? I'm looking at some of us and we look tired. We haven't slept well in months. We've got all this anxiety, all this stuff kind of going on, and we've not had this gospel peace that we're finding here in our lesson today. I mean, let's just kind of play this out. What do you think when they're asking Peter, what was it like, dude? You were, you were incarcerated. This was the night before your execution. What were you doing? What did it feel like? Were you just like restless? Were you just kind of like, you know, just thinking through what you wish you, you would have done differently? Peter, what, what was it like on that night? He said, I was sleeping like a baby. I, I was so at peace that I, I knew God had me. I didn't know if I was going to die or if God was going to deliver me, but it didn't matter because I knew my God. And I knew that at the end of the day, come what may, I'm okay. There's a resurrection. There's a resurrected king. They killed him. He's alive. Do what, do what you want to me. I'm asleep like a baby. We need that sort of gospel peace. And it's available to us. And we can be the kinds of people who are looking at the world right now. And, and I, don't, I don't hear much of this. Instead, what I hear is a lot of anxiety, a, a lot of panic, a lot of, I have no idea how this is going to work. And I'm just so worried I'm just so nervous about how things are going to play out. I don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. I don't know what's going to happen with the elections. I don't know what's going to happen with my business. I just, I'm just so racked with fear and worry and concern. This is a moment for Christians to be able to step up and step into that high calling that we have where we can say, look, we're okay. Yes, the world might get harder. Yes, it might get more chaotic. Yes, we might experience persecution. Yes, there might be some disadvantages in this season. But guys, we are okay. So let's take a nap, right? Let's believe that God is on his throne and he's got this. And we can trust him. Let's be those kinds of believers. Scene number three, we have a reversal in verses 19 to 24. This is one unit. This is one literary unit. And you'll see why here in just a moment. The reversal in verses 19 to 24, take what was happening at verses one to four and just turn it around. Verses one to four, you've got Herod flexing. You've got him going, look at how awesome I am. I'm capturing these suckers. I'm persecuting these guys. I'm imprisoning them. I'm killing them. And you see him as powerful and mighty. And then in verses 19 to 24, that whole thing gets turned on his, on his head. Let's look at it. Herod has to navigate a conflict 
with one of the regions that he is leading with Tyre and Sidon. They are a people who are dependent upon his food supply and they're in trouble and they're upset with his leadership in this moment. And so he goes there and he delivers a killer speech. Apparently he's a good communicator. So he gets up and he says some stuff and the people begin to chant. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Verse 22, they were shouting this. This guy is divine. This is a God. This is no ordinary leader. This man is savior. And they begin to articulate that and shout that and express their worship of him. And God cuts him down to size. Does he not? Look at verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, Josephus is a first century historian. He writes about this, these events. Um, he kind of corroborates the, the evidence. He shows us this really, this really happened. Herod was giving a speech and all of a sudden, and Herod writes about this, you can Google it and find it, but all of a sudden he, he curls over in pain and they rush him away into the palace and for five days he's in absolute agony and then he dies. And, and Luke here is describing what happens and he's just given us the shorthand version. He did not give glory to God. He, he took on himself this worship, this flattery, this adoration. He didn't give glory to God. He was struck down and he died and was eaten by worms. Just like that. That's all that Luke has to say. This guy who thought he was so powerful, so influential, so impressive, so able to kind of exert his will and his force, all of a sudden is reduced to nothing. But, look at verse 24, but, this is where God is showing us, here's where the real power is. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Here's what's really incredible about Christianity. It might look like you're losing, you're not. It might look like you're experiencing setbacks. God can use that, he can leverage that in incredible ways. It might look like the forces arrayed against you are impossible to overcome, but God is saying, look, my mission is not going to be stopped by any king. It's not going to be stopped by any cultural forces. It's not going to be stopped by taking leaders in the church and putting them in prison or even executing them. My mission will advance, and I'll see to that one. My church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You can put Peter in prison. That's still true. My church is going to be built. I will build my church on this confession of the Messiahship. So here we have this reversal where we're beginning to see the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God was unhindered. This is an unstoppable reality. And so what felt so powerful and so insurmountable really is inconsequential in the end. So let's think through some of the big picture things that we need to wrestle with. Now, here's kind of the point of the message today, if you're tracking with me. The thing that, that I think that this chapter of Acts really communicates to us is, no matter how big or threatening the problem may seem, God is in control and he is unstoppable. He's got a mission. His kingdom is going to advance. His kingdom is going to advance and there's nothing that can stop that. 
And so we need to trust that reality and then be ambassadors of it. God has a kingdom. He's going to advance his church. He's going to advance, you know, in the, in the world. Things are going to keep happening. And we as believers can be the ones that say, no matter how hard or daunting the world might look, God wins and we're on his team. So the gospel is unstoppable. Now let's make some connections to our current situation today. Now, I, I got done preaching last week and I said to probably four or five people, I am so tired of talking about this stuff, right? You look at the world right now and I'm tired of talking about politics. I'm tired, tired of talking about social unrest. I'm tired of all these different things. I'm, I'm anxious for the day when we're able to kind of move on from these things. I was talking to Tim about it last week, but the truth is, is where we're living right now. And if the church isn't going to speak into the stuff that we're all feeling and processing, then what good are we? But right now we're living through a moment in human history where there is political unrest, where there is social inequality, where there are things that are happening in our world, where the church needs to have a leading voice in it. And we've allowed for all these different things to become politicized. And so then we, we don't have this distinct voice anymore. And we just kind of stay away from them. So right now, I just want to draw some connections to the story that we're looking at in Acts chapter 12. When it comes to politics, this story reminds us of how insignificant they truly can be. Right now, everyone just feels like if it doesn't go the way that I'm hoping for or praying for, it feels like it's the end of the world. Guys, let's be Let's just be honest and say, that is not true. That is not, we're giving politics way too much credit. We are allowing that narrative to dominate the conversation right now. And it's simply not true. Politics really, in, the, in, in God's economy, he can use them. He sets up kings, he deposes them. There are good kings, there are bad kings, there are Politics are, you know, something that Christians need to be in, engaged with at a significant level. We need to have biblically informed opinions about stuff. We need to pray. We need to vote. We need to do these different things. But at the end of the day, we need to be aware that they're really, politics is kind of inconsequential compared to the power of the gospel, compared to what the church is able to do. So let's not allow politics to become too big. Now, in this moment, it's easy to kind of make some connections. I mean, if you like if you like Trump, you probably don't like our governor. If, you know, Illinois or Wisconsin, if you like Trump, it's, you know, you've got a bad guy, you've got a villain. Uh, if you like the governors, you probably don't like Trump. And it's really easy to look at somebody and say, you know, if, if, if they're leading us, it just feels like this is going to be impossible. If they're leading us, then it just feels like it's an insurmountable reality. But in this moment, let's remind ourselves that God is bigger than all of that, and he is trustworthy. And no matter who is seated on a political throne, if you will, our king is on his throne, and it's going it's to be just fine. The church is going to be just fine. Now, this change of perspective, when we begin to buy into the truth of what I've been describing here today, it really ought to affect you at the deepest of levels. If you really do believe in the power of the gospel for salvation, if you really do believe in the lordship of Christ over every square inch of the creation that he has made, then you ought to be at deep peace. 
you ought to be able to respond to the world with a calm confidence. You ought to be able to engage with the world in a different way. You ought to be able to sleep like Peter, even when things around you just look incredibly impossible. And as you're doing that, I think you are displaying the beauty of the kingdom of God. You're you're not allowing your Christianity to be co-opted into some other narrative. You are allowing your Christianity to shine bright because people are going to see the difference in you and they're going to glorify God on the day when he comes. Let's be those sorts of Christians. We can have this peace by trusting in the good news of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, it's a beautiful place where this idea is kind of expanded. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul is talking about all of the challenges in that first century of, you know, cultural hostility and, you know, uh, unbelieving governments that are seeking to persecute the church. And, and Paul's just kind of reflecting on that. And he's going, okay, if God gave us his son, then there is nothing that can really stand in our way. There, there is no problem. There's no culture. There's no kingdom that can, that can ultimately prevail. If God was willing to give us his son, for his son to go to the cross and die in our place, then there's really nothing that can come against us that will ultimately prevail. He said, concludes in this way, he said, if God did not spare his own son, then will he not also along with that son graciously give us all things? So church, we can have deep confidence today in the goodness of God. Because we know, Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're a believer in Christ, that is for you. You don't have to fret today. You don't have to be anxious anymore. You can sleep a full night's sleep tonight, believing that God is on his throne and he is going to make all things good for you. So let's pray and worship that God. Lord, right now, we're so grateful that you remind us that even when things look bleak or impossible or just troubling or like we're losing, we're not. We're on the side of King Jesus and though he was executed, he lives forevermore. We're on the side of the king who is presently reigning on his throne. And we don't have to fret then about who's leading us locally or federally, Lord, we can just trust that your church is going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. Your church has an opportunity in this moment to shine bright, Lord, and so that's who we want to be. We want to be those people with deep confidence in the goodness of God and in the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to live into this world in this moment in a way that's compelling and beautiful. We don't want to look like the rest of the world right now. We want to look countercultural. We want to look beautiful for your glory, God. So help us to do that, please. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.